You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around we're taking a look at The Nom number 32, which is another look at what's going on back home. It's time in late August, early September 1968. Fitting for our issue today is the song People Got to Be Free by The Rascals, a song that spent five weeks atop the Billboard Hot 100 and was an anthem for tolerance and freedom at the time, which is an incredibly turbulent summer. Land of the Free is the title of our issue. It was written by Doug Murray, with pencils by Wayne Van Zant, inks by Jeff Isherwood, Phil Felix was letterer colorist, Larry Hama consultant, Don Daly editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. A cover by Ron Wagner and Bob McLeod shows three protesters facing off against police, and since it's shot from behind the police, the police look as as if they're looming over the protesters. Tagline is War on the Home Front, and the issue came out on March 28, 1989, with the July 1989 cover date, according to Mike's Amazing World. We begin in early September 1968. The men of the 23rd take a break after a long, hot, feudal patrol. Cruz announces a mail call and hands over some letters. Pig starts reading letters back from his little brother, Teddy, who is going to college back in the world. His brother has a tendency to write letters in bunches, and in one of them he includes a picture of himself, which we see as something explodes in the background. At that same moment, 16,000 miles away, Teddy stands outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, frustrated that he and his friends aren't being allowed in. The security guard tells him that free country or not, he can't get in without a pass. His friend, a red-haired girl with pigtails, says they're delegates from Columbia University, but the security guard isn't buying it and still wants to see the passes. Teddy and his friends head back to their hotel to figure out what to do, and after a long walk through the mean streets of Chicago, they arrive back in the hotel and see Jackson who I guess is more their leader or something like that. He ribs them for for trying to get into the convention and tells them to watch it on TV. He rants about how LBJ vetoing a deal to finish the war, and Teddy doesn't understand, especially since Johnson isn't running for re-election. Jackson chides him and his friends for being so naive, saying that politics is politics. Let the black man fight, the white man get fat, and that war is good for the economy. Teddy asks what they're supposed to do if Jackson is right. Jackson says he's going to march and show these honkies that they can't get away with it. The others decide to march too, and everyone splits up and heads to their room. Teddy sits down with Cookie, who is the red-haired, pigtailed girl, the one we see on the cover, and wonders if he's doing the right thing. She says that they are because they've got to stop this war. Back in that war, Pig and Martini pour it on, trying to get the VC whom Pig says are really dug in, but... They're rescued by a napalm strike. And as the napalm-fed flames flare in Vietnam, flames of a quite different kind flare back in Chicago. As Someone leading a protest at the convention talks about shutting the city down even if it means burning it to the ground. Teddy's incredulous, thinking that's not the right way to do things. 
Cookie counters with a metaphor about cauterizing a wound in order to spread infection. Teddy calls BS on that, saying he knows two wrongs don't make a right. Jackson then jumps in and says that Teddy's young, doesn't know, and this is the only way to do it. Teddy agrees to go along reluctantly and takes a, quote, stop the war sign. And they march to the convention while two men film and photograph them. One of the men mentions that the FBI wants the shots they're taking. And Jackson, obviously not hearing that, says that a TV camera says they'll know they mean business. And as the marchers approach the convention center, the police are already in riot gear. Back in the NAM, the 23rd is meeting problems of its own as they realize they have to do a house-to-house search of the same city they just cleared out an issue or two ago. And as the North Vietnamese soldiers make their way down the streets of Tay Ninh, others fighting a quite different war make their way down the streets of Chicago, shouting, Hell no, we won't go! They get closer to the police, shouting things like, Pigs! Lousy oinkers! The police tell them to disperse because they don't have the permits to march, and the protesters yell at them some more. Tear gas is fired. People scatter. Teddy wraps a bandana over his mouth and helps Cookie get out of there. And we get a splash page that says, As the mass people move into the crowd, the demonstrators, unused to such ferocity, give ground and the police punish them for their audacity. The audacity to think they should have some say in who their president should be. After all, they're only punk kids, beatniks, longhairs. What do they know? Teddy and Cookie make haste to the hotel and watch the riots on television, and Cookie is shocked by the fact that the news seems to be spinning everything as the protesters' fault. Teddy says that his brother says that the news puts the same spin on the war and reminds Cookie that his brother's in Vietnam. Teddy says that he's against the war, but he realizes that men like his brother are just doing their jobs. Jackson comes up behind him and gives a sarcastic round of applause, calling Teddy dumb for thinking that the soldiers are just doing their jobs. Cookie wants to know where Jackson was at the protest, and Jackson mentions that he beat it once the cop shows up. He then invites them to another rally where Tom Hayden is going to speak. The next night, as thousands of anti-war protesters gather in Grant Park near the center of Chicago, Tom Hayden tells a crowd about how they have to organize to stop the illegal war. Cookie says that he's right and they've got to do something, but Teddy's skeptical, saying Hayden seems to be telling what they already know. Hours later, the festivities reach a climax with the singing of We Shall Overcome. Teddy says that things aren't necessarily the way they're saying they are in Vietnam, that his brother says that if we weren't there, the Viet Cong would kill thousands of their own. Jackson says Teddy's brother is another dumb grunt, and Teddy says that he's getting real sick of Jackson, and he ought to, but Jackson tells him to cool off because they're here to fight them, not each other. Teddy says, yeah, whoever they are and walks away with Cookie saying they have to work together. And as the flames of the bonfire lengthen, Ted barely feels the heat as he moves toward the silence of his hotel room in time to think. While half a world away, the heat of a quite different fire warms the face of Ted's brother as he and his comrades, without any time to think, charge into a burning town. They manage to finish off the soldiers and then are able to stand down. Pig resumes reading as he starts reading Teddy's letter. Ted and Cookie emerge from their hotel room to find the FBI guy, the one who was taking pictures earlier in the story. They're cuffed. They're taken down to the police station and they'll be booked for disorderly conduct. They see Jackson in the police station who tells them to be careful who they trust and to grow up. And as they're led to the booking desk, Richard Nixon starts the speech that will help him win the election. Teddy is booked and put in a cell while Pig reads a letter where he says that he's going to the convention. Martini asks if they were ever that young. Pig says, once upon a time, let's hope he found out how the world really works. Yeah, 
Let's hope he finds it out without getting hurt doing it, Martini replies. Way back in issue number 15, Murray did a home front issue that showed the protest against the war through the eyes of someone who had just come back home. In that case, Ed Marks couldn't believe what was going on. It seemed to him that these people were completely misguided and didn't know what they were talking about. Here, however, we get a slightly different perspective. Instead of a letter to the guys from a fellow soldier, we get a a letter to Big Brother from Little Brother. So we're truly getting the perspective of the war protesters. Murray is being as fair as he possibly can, which is tough to do because you're dealing with a topic that is so incredibly volatile. Teddy is a good character to be our main character because not only is he the kid brother of one of our main characters over in the Nam, but he's also an idealistic, somewhat naive kid. It's obvious that he thinks that he's doing the right thing here and he really believes that the war is wrong, but he also still respects his brother. This is a really important point to understand when reading this story, because having read the letters page several issues back, we saw a number of people writing in about how the troops were so mistreated by protesters when they got back home. It's an extreme example, of course, and you can tell here that Doug Murray is deliberately finding the middle ground so that he can show the audience that there were people protesting war who were doing it for the right reasons, and that they weren't all spitting on soldiers and calling them baby killers. Murray also seems to try and take the middle ground when it comes to the riots in Chicago, which were a real event or on one of the more well-known events of 1968. He shows both the protesters and the police as responsible for what happened, and while you probably could just call this hedging and not picking a side, I think it's actually pretty accurate because it shows the complexity of the situation. The tension between a symbol of the establishment and the, quote, long hairs have been building for quite a while, and when you have so much tension, it doesn't take much on either side for things to be set off and completely explode. I also like how you had this Jackson character throughout the entire story who chides Teddy and his friends for being naive and stupid and turns out basically to be a man on the inside, or at least he sold them all out so he didn't get in trouble. I can imagine that Teddy became really disillusioned as a result of all this, but it's important to note that there are snakes and weasels everywhere. I'm glad that Van Sant and Isherwood were the art team here, because had there been someone else inking, this wouldn't have had much of an impact on me. They take the time to be detailed and give characters different facial expressions and use splash pages very wisely. I know I've been gushing about their artwork lately, but I can't say enough about these recent issues. It's definitely an issue that deserves attention. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'll talk about historical context, letters, and ads. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm I'm just a little confused lately. I yeah. What else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took but, the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the back to the bins feed. The back to the bins feed. What's yeah, that? Back to the bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up back to the bins, and you subscribe to the back to the bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right. So if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm gonna go on to iTunes. And I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. 
It's that what simple. Sh- you just got to go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on twotruefreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got them? All the oh. shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Oh. Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because... Uh... It's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. So the 1968 Democratic National Convention took place from August 26th to August 29th, 1968. The party nominated Hubert Humphrey for president and Edmund Muskie for vice president. They would lose to Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew that November. But the bigger story was the violence surrounding the protest outside the convention. The Democratic Party had been in the White House since 1961 with John F. Kennedy was largely seen as the party responsible for the war, especially since Lyndon Johnson was the president during the war's escalation over the last few years. The protests at the convention were being planned since at least the previous year by two large anti-war groups, the Youth International Party, a.k.a. the Yippies, which was led by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, and the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, or MOB, Moby, M-O-B-E, which was an umbrella organization for several smaller anti-war groups. The protests were planned and took place over the entirety of the convention, and several times over the violence erupted between Chicago police and protesters. Here's an NBC News clip about it. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park. We heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used as the demonstrators are attempting to form a line of parade and march toward or on the amphitheater. Those are some of the demonstration leaders saying, keep your cool. carried off to a paddy wagon. Into the crowd at the corner of Balbo and Michigan. There are, now and then there was another one, a bottle being thrown by the crowd. And the police clearing off the sidewalks in front of the Hilton. And the persistent chanting by the crowd, the whole world is watching, they say. Well, I should think, David, what we've seen requires no comment. It's just unpleasant. Uh... Go ahead. No, you're I have nothing further to say about it. There's quite a lot to read about it, and the blame does often fall on Mayor Daly and the police for overreacting to what was supposed to be a peaceful protest. But Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, and five others were arrested as the ringleaders and charged with inciting a riot and moving across state lines to incite a riot. They were dubbed the Chicago 8, which was later shortened to the Chicago 7, and were put on trial. People of Chicago and its mayor are proud to welcome 
a great political gathering of Americans. I saw the look on the poor soldier's face with his gun in the young girl's side. It's decided to enter their own candidate in the presidential sweepstakes. Many are called, but few are chosen. Sir, why did you decide to become a candidate? <laughs> In response to threats on the candidate's life, Secret Service protection was provided by members of veterans and reservists to end the war in Vietnam. That's not all, folks. The defendants, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, John Freunds, Dave Dellinger, Lee Weiner, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, and Bobby Seale, are each charged with the intent to organize, promote, and encourage riots. They are also charged collectively with conspiracy to commit these offenses. The charges really said is that the group of eight people agreed. The agreement was the crime. The law under which the Chicago Eight are indicted is the anti-riot provision of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Senate realizing that Johnson wanted the law quickly, then attached an amendment to the Civil Rights Act. America, the pig empire, in its last throes, has decided that it was going to devour its children. We ain't going to participate in America's Children for Breakfast program. <laughs> I'm going to be lazy here, but this is what Wikipedia says about Tom Hayden when it came to the 1968 convention and the war in Vietnam in the early 70s. In 1968, Tom Hayden played a major role in the protests outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Six months after the convention, he and other protesters, including Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, were, incited, were indicted on federal charges of conspiracy and incitement to riot as part of the, quote, Chicago 8. Hayden and four others were convicted of crossing state lines to incite a riot, but the charges were reversed on appeal. Tom Hayden made several other well-publicized visits to North Vietnam as well as Cambodia during America's involvement in the Vietnam War, including an especially controversial one during 1972 to North Vietnam with his future wife, actress Jane Fonda. The next year, he married Fonda and they had one child, Troy Garrity, born on 7th July 1973. In 1974, while the Vietnam War was still ongoing, the documentary Introduction to the Enemy was released, a collaboration by Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, Haskell Wexler, among others. It depicts their travels through North and South Vietnam in the spring of 1974. So so there's some background on Hayden, there's some background on the DNC, the protests, and the protesters themselves. Other events in September of 1968 include September 6th is the Miss America pageant and 150 women, members of New York Radical Women, arrive in Atlantic City, New Jersey to protest against the Miss America pageant as exploitative to women. Led by by activist and author Robin Morgan, it is one of the first large demonstrations of second wave feminism as women's liberation begins to gather much media attention. On September 13th, U.S. Army Major General Keith L. Ware, World War II Medal of Honor recipient, is killed when his helicopter is shot down in Vietnam. He is posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. The Tet Offensive officially ends on September 23rd. And the 900 U.S. aircraft is shot down over North Vietnam on September 30th. 
incoming this month. Catherine N. Smith, who has uh, written it before, written, writes back and she says, Greetings. Shortly after having a letter published in Incoming in which I offered to run a mail drop for vets interested in writing to other vets, I changed jobs, moved, and of course dropped miles behind. I finally got my pile of letters and answered them rather tardily and would appreciate it if you would run my new address as there seems to be a lot of interest. Most of the letters include, an, uh, include a SAZE, but there's not it's not necessary if anyone really wants to write and can't handle the postage. I also lost my letter file, nothing like a nice organized move, so please ask Don Smith in Florida to get back in touch with me. We corresponded several times, and I'd hate for him to think I have just forgotten him. I haven't, just his address. I'd really like what you're doing in the NOM. Your stories continue to the present, present an accurate representation of those troubled times, at least as far as I know. I especially liked the issue that showed things from the Viet Cong point of view. We seldom think about an enemies about enemies as people and almost never look at events from that viewpoint. My opinion is that we were involved in what was essentially a civil war. Can you imagine how we would have felt if the Vietnamese had fought in our civil war? I just, just read number 29. The art is crisp. The story is good. I think it's important to put the events of Vietnam in context with what else was going on in the world at that time, and you did a good job. It looks like you've been showing, you've been watching the show China Beach. I really like the show, although it makes me feel guilty for not following through with the plans I had at the time to go to Nam while my husband was there. I also remember when the guilt comes through that I had a baby and that being a mother was my first responsibility. In the letters I have received, one was from a young man of 15. He didn't think anyone would want to hear from him, but I think he's wrong. It encourages me that we have a new generation which doesn't despise our vets, but admires and is proud of them. This is important. Our kids are showing a much better sense of responsibility than many of us did. I also have a request from for news of anyone who was from the 2nd 18th Infantry 1st Division, Company B, from January 68 to October of 69. If anyone out there has any leads, please write to me. It's very important to a very special man, one who is, I might add, on 100% disability. Doug replies, Catherine is a very special person and would like to thank her on behalf of all those vets and others who need someone who cares. Kenneth Luke, he wanted to comment on the Chris Knoll story. She's an always be a hero in every sense of the word. She saved my sanity in an otherwise insane situation. At night when she was on the radio, we all listened as if we were. it was from our girl back home. I always was better when she never got the recognition. I was always bitter when she never got the recognition she deserved. Your magazine was the only one I know that ever gave her some credit she should have received long ago and knew more stories about her. There is then a picture of, uh, that looks like Daniels, I believe. Yep, that's Daniels saying, I'm back. <laughs> it says, join us next issue as former as a former grunt reluctantly rejoins our boys in the NAM. And then finally, there is a letter from Tim, Steitzer, Tim Stelzer from Ames, Iowa. Fellow NAMers. In June of 1968, I was a ten-and-a-half-year-old kid who believed that war was sometimes necessary and always bad. Bad because real people like my uncle risked life and limb not just for themselves, but for all of us. The NAM 29 showcased one of the intriguing dichotomies of that conflict. The fact that ice and pig could be knee-deep in rice soup one minute and then enjoying in-country R&R the next seems incongruous, yet it happened. You effectively illustrated that irony, but having the fighting, the diplomatic intransigence, and the stuff back home all happening simultaneously with the human bliss at Cameron Bay. Doug, continue keeping the nom credible, which only someone like you who has been there can do. Will you ever just the MIA POW issue? Don't let them be forgotten. 
Uh, Doug says, don't worry, Tim Kane, Tim or Sean Kane, who wrote a similar letter. Incidentally, anyone knowing anything about Captain Roger Wilson, please let us know and we'll pass it along. We'll get to the POW issue in a future issue. We haven't forgotten. One more note, a group of Vietnam vets is working on a scholarship program. They need help. Um, and this is courtesy of Professor Wilbur J. Scott of the University of Oklahoma. So Nam notes this month, OK Troops, a different sort of war this time and a mixed bag of words from both battle battlefields. Fast movers are jet aircraft, different from spads, which were prop jobs. Hubie, slang for Hubert Horatio Humphrey, Humphrey, vice president under Lyndon Johnson and candidate in 1968 for the number one spot. LBJ was, this time around, is, is Lyndon Baines Johnson, president from John F. Kennedy's death until from 1963 until Nixon's inauguration in 69. Mail call, the best part of the day in country when you finally got to hear from outside, from family and those you cared about thousands of miles away. Pop some caps, open fire, squeeze off some rounds. Richard Daly, mayor of Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Thuds, the Republic F-105 Thunder Chief. A good aircraft that, which could really take a licking and keep on ticking. Tom Hayden, a, a leader of the draft resistors who later married Jane Fonda and is currently trying his hand at politics. Note, this is an unusual sort of issue of the NOM. Back in number 15, we sh showed the troops' view of the protesters back home. In this issue, we give the protesters equal time. The events depicted here, the phony cameramen, agent provocateurs, etc., are actually occurred and contributed to our being so torn up by the war. Most protesters were honestly against the war, not the soldier. It is for them that this issue was created. Ads this month, we've got the Campbell on the inside cover. We have the Campbell's Ruin Your Comic Puzzle page. We're fisting some more. We have the same, a lot of the same ads, quick shots. And uh, actually, all the ads in this issue are the same, except the back page, back cover, inside back cover ad is the, the Taito Bubble Bobble ad. So I guess because I think it was bi-weekly at this point or, or was close to that. Uh, once again, these ads tend to repeat a lot, so... That's what you get. So this is the end of this episode. This is the end of looking at nom number 32. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the nom number 33. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. 
Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nob.